The House Show. For over 17 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the trio's tag team champions of the world, the masked library Kevin Hellions, sweet Maddie Treats, and the educator of excellence, collectively known as the House Show. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of The House Show. It is me, as always, Mr. Matty Treats, and I am joined by two of the greatest minds in wrestling retro podcasting on the Retro Network, releasing podcasts every Thursdays. To my right, the educator of excellence, educator, how are you doing today? Hello, sir. Hello, retro fan. Uh, of the uh, wrestling universe looking forward to talking about this particular pay-per-view the canadian stampede um oftentimes referred to as calgary stampede given the history of stampede wrestling and in, in, in the calgary area and the hart family and so on um very very unique show given the fanfare and uh, the state of the WWF at that time with the whole U.S. versus Canada bouncing back and forth almost weekly. One show in the States, one show up in Canada. Um, very, very interesting dynamic with everything that was going on at this time. It's going to be fun to get your guys' opinions on this and uh, talk about offs, maybe some fantasy booking as to what could have been or maybe uh, different types of storylines we could have possibly have seen had you know, some uh, things worked out for some of the wrestlers on the card. Yeah, really looking forward to this episode. Uh, I think we all are. I think when we started this project, this was one of those episodes you circle because you're like, oh, I can't wait to revisit this, see if it lives up to uh, what we remember, right? and then go from there. So uh, very exciting stuff. And then, of course, to the left, the man, the myth, the legend, the masked library, Kevin Hallians. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, stuff is still closed up where I am. We're not into a, a phase where everything is open. It took me forever to find a cowboy hat to wear while we discussed this show. But but did you find one? Uh, eventually, it's a primary color and it has a string that goes around my chin, but then I won't lose it. Well, that's good. You don't want to lose your, your hat. Was it a uh, was it a 17-gallon hat like Lawler had on? Was it a 12-gallon hat that Vince had on? Or was it a, nor- it was a normal hat? I think it's like a two-cup hat, and it says oh. uh, World's Smallest Sheriff on it. There you go. Two cups, one sheriff. All right. So um, we are, do you guys know, like the timing just worked out perfect. We are actually in the shadows of the 23 three-year anniversary of this event um you know that happened about a couple of about 10 days ago so uh the event was july 6th 1997 we of course are in calgary alberta canada at the canadian airlines saddle dome now known as the scotia bank saddle dome we're at in your house 16 the canadian stampede and it's it's hard for me to, to believe guys 
that this is our 16th, uh, 16th in your house out of 26. So we only got 10 more of these left. It's crazy how quick this has been flying. So much fun talking to you guys. Um, but I, I do have to tell you how my week's been going. Okay. Um, so if you guys follow us on Twitter, a few weeks back, I sent out a photo to the retro network of my new face masks. Of course, New York, you have to wear face masks when in public. So I got two face masks. I got the NWO one and I got the Ric Flair one. So you can't go wrong with the Ric Flair one. I think everyone agrees on that. So a couple days ago, I went to work and of course you got to represent the man. So I'm wearing the Ric Flair mask. It's after work car sushi time. Oh, as everyone is is well aware of my, my love for car sushi. So I go to the Wegmans to get my sushi for the car and i hear woo woo were you getting, like, pulled, what were you getting pulled over no uh, how would i get pulled over if i'm walking to wegmans to get car sushi i don't know but i bet you you'd have a 143 and two-thirds percent chance of getting out of that ticket <laughs> right so anyways i get the cars or get the car sushi in it's people wooing at me because of my mask, which I've never had happen before. But you've also haven't worn the mask before. That is true. You wear the robe true. all the time. I would have thought you would have yeah. gotten for that. Nothing else. I kick it real flare style. Just the robe. Nothing else. Um, so I get the car sushi. I, I, I put the wasabi on. I do all that. And I start driving. And I'm popping my, popping my rolls. <laughs> I'm enjoying life. You're dancing in the too? I knew I knew popping the rolls would, would get a pop out of Kevin. So uh, popping the rolls, and I'm not doing it. And I get about 10, uh, 10 minutes from home, okay? And it's an hour and a half drive one way. And I hear, woo, woo, woo. But this time it is the police sirens. So I, I was speeding. You know, it happens. I wasn't paying attention to my to my speed. And I get pulled over and the cop comes up. He's got um, a a face mask on. I don't know what the protocol is. So I throw my face mask on. Like, am I supposed to do that? Am I not? We're within six feet. I think you're supposed to in New York State. So license, registration, the whole nine yards. Give him the license and registration. He goes back, runs everything. Comes back clean, guys clean record this guy right here boom 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 so comes back he goes hey you know you were speeding just try to keep it down i'm gonna give you um it's uh obstructive license plate is the actual ticket i'll give you okay because you have no offenses anything like that i said thank you sir i appreciate that probably a 50 dollar fine and about a hundred dollar court fee or something like that. Yeah. A lot better than a speeding. No ticket, points though, on so. your license. Anything like yeah. that. Insurance. Thank you. Yeah. From the, from the driver's head. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, well, so anyways, sir. he hands me the ticket and goes, Hey, just so you know, to be the man, you got to beat the man. And you lost to the man tonight and walks away. And I'm like, are you kidding me that, right now? That's awesome. Because I had the flare mask on. That's awesome. Love it. Kevin, do you remember the, the the one time that we were together when the cops came for us? For us? Yeah, yeah. We had one night out. We went to a, a local bar. 
we decided to walk home. And let me tell the audience and the educator the story. Does this quick. involve a um, eight-sided? Uh, nope, there was someone else. <laughs> what the? Whoa! Uh, tune in next week for that story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, anyways, uh, we we go to the bar. It's closing time. We're leaving. Start walking to. Uh, we, we both sort of live a couple blocks from each other, so at the time at least. Uh, so we start walking because, you know, we don't want to drink and drive. Don't drink and drive out there, folks. So um, we start walking. I have to use the restroom out in public. Oh, my God. I forgot the story. <laughs> I decide to pee on the side of a building because that's what you do, apparently. Little did I know it was a bank and that my pee would set off the bank alarm. A cop walks in, or a cop all of a sudden is there in like 20 seconds, like pulls right in instantly, like lights going off the whole nine yards. Everything's going crazy. What do you think my tag team partner would do in this situation uh, there, educator? Hands up. Hands up. Do something. No, you know what he did? He ran away. Oh, he ran that's from me. not good. He goes, you're screwed and took off. <laughs> Listen. Listen. I don't run that well sober, so there's not a chance I was running drunk. I think I walked away thinking there's no way this count. they're coming for you and I don't want to stand next to you while you're peeing. I think I was just walking, figuring you would catch up with me. You took off like you had pizza and you were just running from Little Caesars. <laughs> he had a $5 hot and ready. Fire in the hole. <laughs> he was gone. He was gone. Fire in the hole. <laughs> I'm sure once I realized you were in trouble, I doubled back for you. Yeah, sure he did. Clean. Luckily, I, the uh, the guy understood that I was an idiot, and he just let me go. So I, I appreciate that. I, I, I mean, we were like across the street from the bar. I'm sure it happens all the time. I just wish they would have posted signs. Do not pee on a bank, because it'll set the alarm off. See, because I did it once in broad daylight on a state building and didn't get caught. I, I I was drinking heavily watching the Nathan's Hot Dog Contest on the 4th of July. <laughs> I took off and I didn't make it home. It sometimes happens. It does. You know, sometimes it happens. I just... Why would you pregame for the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest? And by the way, that contest happens at like... That contest happens at noon. Yup. Where you just you just started drinking early in the day, yep. Kevin? You're not a big drinker I'm either. I'm not. I was with people who were drinking for it. And, and betting on things for the day. And then I said, oh, I am done here today. <laughs> and foolishly walked home. The Joey Chestnut of day drinking over here. <laughs> so, all right. Why don't we get into the pay-per-view after having our, our fun with the law there. Um, of course, we start with the video intro. And you're seeing it. Shades of gray, guys. Shades of gray. Educator, you're pumping your fists. You look excited. What did you think of this opening oh, video? Oh, the, the voiceover. Fantastic. Telling us the story. How the villains are returning to Calgary as the heroes. Oh, oh just great, great foreshadowing for what was going to be a really, really hot crowd, especially for the main event. Uh, I love these video packages. They always set the tone, set the mood for things that are definitely getting ready to come. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like the the more people talk about it over the years, the original plan wasn't for them to be faces everywhere else. It was to be full-blown heels. But that's not what happened, and they ran with it. And then it became, honestly, I think it's one of the most high-concept ideas in wrestling. 
to be heels in one place and faces elsewhere. And, it, you know, we, we cheer like the cool heels and, you know, applaud because you have respect for personal. But this was flat out 100% love or 100% hate for them. I, I can't think of any other time it worked and I don't think it could again. It was just a, a magical moment. And, and it was crazy, just all, all the other storylines and stuff that was going on. Traditional faces got the pop, the heels got the booze. But anybody that worked with the hearts, it, it was always a flip-flop for that night and that night only in Canada. And then back to the States, it was just the complete opposite. Now, my, my question about this is because they are talking about the shades of gray and how good guys are bad guys, bad guys are good guys. Uh, did Vince do that segment in front of Raw yet? I, I don't think it happened yet because Vince is on commentary for the show. No, not yet. Vince didn't end up doing his shtick uh, becoming the Mr. McMahon character until December later that year, being involved in the the Rock winning the Intercontinental title and uh, Steve Austin, you know, in that feud and refusing to turn the belt over. That's where we start to really, really see the uh, the McMahon character begin to take off. Late 90s. After, after does, everything with Montreal and, and so on. Because when he does that promo before Raw, he's speaking as the owner. He's not speaking as an announcer. So all of the, all of the you know you can't even call them walls up like everyone kind of knew the chain link fence that's around this facade that vince is just an announcer not in charge of the company is that was like the last bit that had to fall down yeah and and uh it's just the foreshadowing i think is is what the important thing of that uh opening video is where it's foreshadowing the fact that you know it's shades of gray and this is kind of the direction that they're going into so uh we do have the full set uh, we do get Pyro as well, uh, and we are greeted by Vince, Jr. and the King of the Cowboys, Jerry the King Lawler, in what has to be one of the biggest hats uh, of all time. Um, how how many gallons is this hat? Uh, Got to be like a 17-gallon hat, without a doubt. I think it's so big you could fit your all-day pizza inside of it. All-day pizza would fit. Yeah, I I think if you if you can if you haven't watched the pay per view, just get a photo of this this freaking hat because you can't he can't even see anything. It's so funny. And even Vince's hat is like comically huge, or he's just he's got it set so low on his face that you don't see his eyes hardly at all during the telecast at all either. Do you think they were ribbing Jr.? Uh, no, because Jr. I, wasn't doing it all the time yet. Yeah, this is one of the things that pushed him over to doing all time. Honestly, they're acting like they've they've been out drinking to, to bring it around a little bit. And they're trying to hide their faces and their eyes. Like, oh, don't look at me. This will keep the lights out of my eyes, too. So we're then, uh, we then go right into a Mankind uh, versus Triple H with China video to kind of set up that feud. And that's going to be our first match of the evening. Triple H versus Mankind. Of course, in Triple H's corner, we have China. What did you guys think of this match? Uh, starting to definitely build their feud to even bigger things that we would come to see in about a year and a half or so later uh, with Mankind's eventual world title victory over uh, Triple H. Uh, this this is doing continuing to do wonders and building China as this wrecking machine, uh, as, you know, seconded at ringside for Triple H. Um, I, I thought it was a, a, a 
one of the better matches that they've had, and especially early in their career, Foley is still like very mobile, very agile. He's starting to put on a little bit more weight, and it's becoming a little bit more visible. But he he's very very mobile, very very agile in this match. Um, love towards the beginning of the match, mankind kind of doing that little genuflect cur- curtsy, mocking Triple H. Um, mankind doing his typical elbow drop from the ring apron to the floor. We hear Jim Ross talk about bang bang. That's from uh, Cactus Jet the, from the Cactus Jack days. We see a vertical suplex onto Triple H um, on the uh, entrance ramp. So we're starting to get into that attitude era, hardcore style kind of deal that we uh, WWE is really starting to begin to push the envelope on. Um, one of my frustrations in this particular match is just the the refereeing, Jimmy Corderas, his positioning and a lot of the outside interference or just missing things that you know. He sh- it's just the way his body is positioned. How could you just not see the blatancy of China interfering? You're st- he- she's standing right next to you and is throwing a forearm onto Foley to break up the, the mandible claw. And-, and why are you, Cordero, standing outside of the ring? Um, later in the match, you know, uh, Triple H has got a figure four leg lock, you know, kind of a little homage to Ric Flair. And, um, you know, he's doing the heelish maneuver of grabbing the middle ropes for leverage. You know, the first time he's not caught. The second time he grabs the top rope, Coderis turns to Triple H, while, and, but is staring at the middle rope. And then Triple H lets go of the top rope and Coderis starts shaking the middle rope like, hey, you know, I, am I seeing this rope move? I'm like, how do you not see that? And then later on in the match with a, a, a chair shot onto mankind with uh, China just pretty, you know, trying to draw interference. It's literally going on right behind his back. How could you just not see this going on? China had an amazing uh, clothesline onto Foley uh, when the ref was distracted. Um, at one point, uh, Foley got Irish whipped uh Triple H reversed an Irish whip on the floor and China caught hit, uh, caught mankind and did like almost like a hip toss power slam onto the ring apron steps and his left leg just hit the corner of the steps so awkwardly. It looked very, very painful. The only thing besides the refing that I was kind of uh, frustrated with is the, the non-finish. But I guess they were setting, of course, up for the next match that would be at SummerSlam, kind of like to end the feud, so to speak, at least at the time. Uh, I thought it was a decent, great opener, the post-match shenanigans of them brawling in the crowd. Uh, and then we eventually see that throughout the night as well. Um, continuing the storyline, doing what it needs to do to build for the bigger blow-off at SummerSlam. And that's the thing. Like, I'm trying to think, because we know that SummerSlam match is coming. We know things later on. I don't think I would have been upset with the non-finish watching it live in 97 because this is already part of a series of matches for them. I know something else is coming. I wouldn't know what it is in July, but I would know, okay, SummerSlam's next month. That'd be a bigger thing. They're clearly leading up to it. It's a bigger story. It's, you know, it's not a title. It's not a main event. This double count-up finish is more acceptable, especially with things that happen later on on this card. Um, Mankind just showing the character and becoming more well-rounded and evolved. And instead of being like, 
this evil monster. He's become like this sympathetic character that was, you know, only doing bad acts because he didn't know any better or he was influenced to. You have the, they did the recap of the promo on Raw, where China says that he can kiss her ass and he says, I'm a good kisser. Like, what a giant evolution of the character compared to what he was just a short time ago. It, it's just shown how good he is. And then Hunter's already fantastic. You can already see why they put faith in him. You just need to give a reason for the audience to care, whether they cheer or boo him. Get them to care about this character, too. And these matches with Foley are doing it. China's already a star. There's more money in her look and her gear than Vader has. And China's been around for like two months now. You made excellent points about the referee, and I didn't even think of it. But you're right. It's like he it's like he's told what the match is supposed to be, and when it doesn't go in that exact sequence, he continues to go with that exact plan and can't adapt. So like I'll I'll give it more to treats and myself. It's like when you're acting and the person messes up the next line. And you're like, okay, I can take what they did and come back around and get where we're supposed to go and make it sound natural. Because if I just go ahead, like the script says, it's going to be even more jarring and look even worse. Because now it looks like we have two screw-ups. And right. there's ways refereeing. It's just like, what the hell's happening here? Honestly, the best refing of the match is during the countout when Tim White goes flying. Right. You know? <laughs> during the post-brawl breakup, yeah. And... uh my favorite line is Mick Foley's 287 pounds to be exact. And that's an estimate. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how we could have an exact estimate. Um, I think it was Jim <laughs> Ross that said, I lost. I was like, Oh, I have to pause and write this line down. Um, I, I'm just uh, tri- seeing triple H before, you know, he becomes, he becomes seeing China, seeing Foley. It's so exciting. It's almost like when we would go to indies and then see the guys on like WWE a year or two later. Like we're in WWF, we're seeing them, but seeing them as young and hungry and all is interesting. And then, you know, eventually when we see some of these guys winning more titles, it's going to be even more exciting. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the finish here, of course, with the with the double countout, usually you feel cheated with a double countout, but with the way they intertwine the storyline throughout the pay-per-view, I thought they did a great job of making you want to see more of it and making you really crave that next uh, interaction between the two of them. Because as we go through this, you'll, you'll see how they're brawling all over the building inside, outside. It's fantastic. So, so moving on from that match, we are folks at the Calgary stampede weekend with, uh, Kevin, 1997, there was a uh, Mrs. Calgary contest. Not a Miss Calgary contest, a Mrs. Calgary contest. Who won that? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure the population of Calgary off the top of my head. got to imagine there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of beautiful women that happen to be married. So it's Mrs., not Miss Calgary. Um. You know, I, from from many, you know, they, they could be a uh, young bride or in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Who knows? I, I think that's a wide open field, Matt. I could not possibly guess what stunning beauty the Great White North has to offer us. Uh, Mrs. Diana Hart Smith. Son was of the 19, 1997. I don't understand your hatred for her. I think she's a very attractive woman at this time. 
Probably still is, too. I don't understand this push for her. Owen Hart's wife is out there at the end. She's much more attractive than Diana Hart. If you just want to throw a random Hart woman out there. But as we talked on prior episodes, it has to be because her on the road helps Bulldog. Probably. Probably. But that doesn't mean she needs to be like, you know, out on camera all the time too. Take, taking time away. Matt, she's taking time away from Sonny. So, well, anyways, <laughs> she is the uh, the queen of the parade uh, that goes on. And, and this is just a nice video package of everything that was going on that weekend. Uh, they really made it into a huge weekend, of course, with them not really getting a lot of WWF pay-per-views. It, it would make sense that you're having fun throughout the whole weekend. Calgary Stampede week, weekend whatever is always a thing in Calgary. Um, they just happen to have the wrestling show as part of it, too, to make it even bigger. But, I mean, that goes on, every, well, maybe not this year, but I got friends in Canada. That goes on every year. It's a huge thing. No, absolutely. I'm just saying the way the, the wrestling was intertwined. I yeah. mean, they, they brought them at every event. Um, how long would you wait in line for a Bret Hart autograph? See, I know the answer for this. Educator. We'll go with you. I would wait at minimum one minimum. Point one miles long. Which is that's how long I would wait. But how many kilometers? Because it is in Canada, and yet they keep referring to how many miles along the line. (laughs) Well, I'm not. I'm too confused on the whole metric thing. English system, metric system, whatever, whatever it is. I'm not sure. Uh, But no, yeah, they 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 do make it a point that the line to. to get Bret Hart's autograph is uh, is about a mile long. So uh, we also have the white hat ceremony, and of course, for that you're going to bring Goldust and LOD, the heels of the match, to to the ceremony. So I looked up the the white hat ceremony because uh, it does have to do a lot with the uh, Stampede, and I didn't realize this, but the Calgary white hat is part of the Calgary flag now. So symbol of symbol of. Uh, everything uh up in that uh province province right yeah i was today's old when i found that out <laughs> found that out right yeah. so was i so uh there was a tug of war that happened oh too. come on kayfabe brother i mean they had blackjacks and they had the godwins on the same team but they were opponents for the dark match for the show later that night it's crazy well that was much of a match. maybe they just both hated firefighters that's who the tug of war was against. We we might we, we might hate each other in the ring, but here in the real world, we're united in our hate against firefighters, the blackjacks, and the godwins, the godjacks. God. Um, and then of course, Bret Hart is at the actual Calgary Stampede, uh, just enjoying life. Uh, uh, so then we get an interview with Doc Hendricks interviewing the Hart Foundation. And then we get one with Stone Cold Steve Austin. What you guys think of uh, one? Was it was it good to kind of get the whole Calgary uh, stampede in there in that video just to kind of see the festivities going around? Um, and then what you guys think of these interviews? 
Interview was fun. Um, I liked the fact that Bret Hart was doing a throwback look with the old round glasses uh, that he was wearing, kind of very similar to the glasses he used to wear when he was originally tagging with Jim Neidhart in the mid-'80s. Um, I actually kind of wish he would have worn those to the ring as opposed to his Bret Hart uh, you know, giveaway sunglasses to the fans. But then again, it kind of makes sense given that they were the faces of the uh, the main event match later in the night. Um, in, in face-like promo and the fact that Austin storms in, acting like he was going to attack the hearts, and he's like, no, we don't want you to have an excuse that you got beat down five-on-one. We'll wait till it's five-on-five, and we'll take you out that way. So definitely a little, little barb being thrown back at Stone Cold. It was fun. See, and like, there's a lot of people online complaining, well, Austin – busted in there and then he was held back by uh who was it pat patterson and uh tony Gurria, i think yep held him back like two 50 plus year old men held that back austin he's supposed to be such a badass and all all right you walk into a locker room it would be five on one now there's agents you got a match later on austin the character was smart enough to go i'm gonna walk away this time because i still want to have this match but after the match, I don't care what happens. And that's exactly what he did after the match, too. Like, it's not backing down. It's just like, I want to start this fight to my advantage. Yeah. And then we get to our second match of the night. We got Taka Mishinoku taking on the great Sasaki in the light heavyweight division. Uh, what did you guys think of this match? And was this a what was this a partnership of? Was it all Japan? What what was the um, explanation for bringing in the Japanese talent? It was WWE's attempt because WCW was starting to uh, strike it big in a niche market with their ver- their cruiserweight division, and it was starting to really pick up steam in in '96. In fact, by then I believe WCW had uh, already established their cruiserweight championship. Uh, I know Shinjiro Otani was the original uh, tournament winner that won the title back in 96. And uh, I know the title, uh, it was starting to pick up steam. We started to see uh, Rey Mysterio Jr., uh, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko. These guys were starting to become uh, a fixture in WCW as well as uh, a lot of the Lucha Libre stars uh, due to Conan's uh, partnership, you know, with Mexico and so on, and the AAA promotion, um, I'm frustrated in this match. I, the match itself was a very sound match and got a lot of oohs and ahs and pops from the crowd. Um, I believe that this was kind of more like a tryout kind of deal with uh, Michinoku Pro Wrestling uh, because Taka Michinoku, who um, ended up being signed and becoming the fixture of the division, at least the launch of the division. We would actually have a light heavyweight championship title uh, title tournament that would culminate at the December in your house pay-per-view, which we will be reviewing a few, a few weeks from now. Um, I'm frustrated in that you brought it up yourself, a light heavyweight championship or light heavyweight, uh, you know, match, but, like even Howard Finkel announced that actually as a junior heavyweight division match and the graphic on the screen then comes up with light heavyweight, you know, division match. And then Jim Ross keeps bouncing back and forth between junior heavyweight, light heavyweight. I mean, 
I just wish there was just consistency. Uh, and the, even the word cruiserweight, I believe, was even uh, mentioned at one point um, as well. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, what was the purpose of the match? Was it to show the WWE audience, WWF audience at the time, uh, these Japanese talent? Because in both this match and the match they ended up having the very next night, there was a rematch between great Sasuke, uh, Sasuke and Takamichinoku. Sasuke won both matches, but we ended up signing Takamichinoku. Why wouldn't they just begin starting to push Takamichinoku as the face? I mean, we see amazing spots. Uh, Jim Ross even talks about how Taka likes to use his finishing maneuver aptly named for himself, the Michinoku driver. And we, we see that in the match itself. Slow start to the match. But eventually, as these guys start to get a little bit more comfortable, maybe, again, they're not used to the WWF-style ring, looser ropes, a little, probably a little bit bigger space in terms of uh, size-wise. We see a lot of stiff kicks in this match. Each guy's to each other in the face and the head. Very, very stiff in the match. Do you think, uh, just, a, just a question, uh, number one, uh, do you think that it started slow because they did intertwine Mankind and Triple H right at the, the beginning of it? So start slow. I The match actually didn't start until after they were like separated and, and pulled out of the arena. Um, slow match, you know, doing some mat work, wrestling wear down holds. But then about two or three minutes into the match, these guys really start to move a lot uh, back and forth. Some stiff roundhouse kicks back and forth. Taka Michinoku hitting a drop kick, well, a low drop kick to a sitting prone great Sasuke. Uh, Sasuke got a huge like groan and pop from the crowd. Um, when Taka was uh, thrown to the floor, Sasuke... Like did a, a leapfrog to the top rope and then did like more of a ninja karate kick drop kick off the top rope to the floor. Um, thrown back in the ring, Taka's in the corner. Sasuke, uh, Sasuke is doing some kicks and then does a spinning roundhouse kick that just completely like the crowd went went completely crazy for. Um, Taka ended up hitting one of those, uh, one of his signature move sets that we see later on in his career where he throws his opponent out and then runs across the ring, does a springboard plancha to the top rope, and then does a diving crossbody. It's referred to as a plancha by Jim Ross, um, onto the floor itself. That got a big ooh and ah from the crowd. Taka hitting a Hunakurana for a two, did a roll up Maestro Cradle for a two. Just, you know, we're seeing some maneuvers that weren't commonplace in WWE television. They were becoming more and more common in uh, ECW with Rey Mysterio and Psychosis, and then eventually on WCW television later. But we're now starting to see this quicker, faster paced style. Uh, that the WWE uh, WWF audience was just not really used to. Sasuke throwing, uh, jumping or running the ropes and doing a handspring elbow, almost kind of like a Great Muda. Anybody who's familiar with Great Muda and then that particular combination that he would throw into the corner. We see Taka do an Irish whip into the corner and do a, a follow-up kick to the chest. 
and then spring outside into a springboard uh, drop kick to the back of Sasuke's head and just sending Sasuke flying to the opposite edge of the ring. We eventually see Taka Michinoku hit his Michinoku driver, sits on top of his opponent's chest for what he believes is a one, two, three. Sasuke ends up kicking out in a, at a two count. Then we see a comeback from Sasuke, and he eventually hits a vicious, vicious-looking powerbomb that would make Sid Vicious, that would make Vader absolutely blush, would make Kevin Nash blush, um, was referred to as a thunder firebomb in the uh, post-match angle review. And then we see a double-arm chicken wing suplex by Sasuke on Tataka Michinoku with a bridge, gets him for the one, two, three. It was a good match, a very, very sound match. Uh, My question is, what was the point? Was it trying to get Sasuke over? Should it have been maybe used to get Taka Michinoku over, who ended up becoming eventually the face of the division for the first year when it finally launched. I don't know. Maybe they could have told a little bit of a better story uh, the following night on Raw, but again, the following night, we see the same pretty much result. Sasuke with another win. So you covered pretty much everything in the match, but I got stuff for what was happening. WWF sometimes are the innovators, but sometimes someone else needs to do something cool first, and they go, crap, we need to do that too. Most recently, changing the hard camera angle and putting wrestlers in the stands as fans, both of which AEW was doing first, and then WWE copied it during the corona times. This is very much a reaction to WCW Cruiserweight division. You got the NWO as a popular angle, but then the more and more the Cruiserweights get matches, people are going nuts for it. Those were the best matches on the card. They had to do something. So in April, a little show called Barely Legal happened with a six-man match featuring talent from Michinoku Pro. Rumor is, before the match was even over, Jim Ross was on the phone going, Hey, Paul, where'd you find these guys, and do you have them under contract yet? Because if not, we're about to. WWF did a sit-down with Great Sasuke because he owned Michinoku Pro. That was his promotion, so he was the star of it. And they said, we would like some of your guys. We would like to bring people over. We want to start this light heavyweight division over here. What can we do? Greg Sasuke said, I'll come over and wrestle, but I have to run my own company here. So I can only wrestle part-time. But if you want some of my guys, that's okay. But I have to look strong. WF's like, we don't care. We really want Taka. We don't really want you, but we'll cut a deal. So Sasuke was willing to send over Taka, a couple other people later on. He had to get the win, and then he was gone. And WWF sent over Undertaker and I think Candido and Sonny at some point to Japan for like a crossover tour. And then that was about it. And I mean, Taka ended up spending the next, what, like five, six years under as a WWF employee? And then extending into Kai and Tai and other things later on. But the whole point was they wanted Taka, they wanted him under contract, and this is how they had to go about, you know, appeasing everyone to get to that end goal. It's crazy, too, just how quick they are in this match compared to everyone else. I I just wanted to note that. I mean, how, how fast they were, especially after watching a, a Triple H match. Right. If, if, if it wasn't for the main event, this would have stolen the show. Right, without a doubt. 
Yeah. Um, so once again, after the match, we get Mankind and Triple H outside fighting. Um, you know, really intertwining and weaving that storyline in throughout the first half of this pay-per-view. Um, and then we follow that up with uh, Ahmed Johnson getting replaced by Vader in the uh, heavyweight title match. We get a little uh, video package there. Then we have Doc Hendricks interviewing Vader and Paul Bearer. Uh, anything of note from these videos? Do you guys want to touch on Ahmed? Uh, how he was supposed to be in it and then not because he's Ahmed. <laughs> That's what he does. He gets hurt. Um, anything of importance out For of this. For the fans that might not be aware, um, uh, about four or five weeks prior to this show, uh, Ahmed Johnson ended up turning on The Undertaker in a tag match on Monday Night Raw where uh, Farouk and a returning uh, Kama Mustafa, the Supreme Fighting Machine Kama, but I was renamed Kama Mustafa and face Ahmed Johnson in his red gear and his knee pads, thigh pads, whatever. Um, and mid-match, uh, the, this is after, for uh, you know, Farouk had already fired Savio Vega and Crush as being members of the team, and he was just replacing the team. Uh, right now, Kama Mustafa and another man to be named, and then mid-match, Ahmed Johnson turned setting up what was supposed to be an Ahmed Johnson versus Undertaker match. And then in a throwaway angle with the nation members fighting crushes version of his gang, the disciples of apocalypse. There was a roll around on the, on in the middle and Ahmed Johnson ended up tweaking his knee to the point where he ended up needing to have surgery, surgery that, you know, corrected the issue, but then he ended up re- Injuring the knee the following month again at uh, at SummerSlam during what was a six man tag match or an eight man tag with the Disciples of Apocalypse. Well, and then like uh, there's been so many interviews talking about what would have happened if Undertaker versus Ahmed Johnson did happen. Ahmed Johnson was known for being dangerous in the ring. You could have injured Undertaker, who's your champion at the time. Could have injured him permanently. Do you really want to put the title on Ahmed Johnson at this time either, as unreliable as he is? Like, honestly, it, not that this is this is our typical Vader match. We we end up with a couple good ones, surprisingly, along the way here. But this is more what we're used to during his WWF career. It's still better than throwing Ahmed in there, though. Like, I honestly think if they went forward with that match, someone's getting injured. I, I do like the angle that was teased with with Farouk being very frustrated, being very mad that, okay, a Nation of Domination member has been injured. Why isn't another member of the group uh, replaced, be, uh, allowed to take his place? And then kind of poking at the injustice uh, that is you know, for the, uh, the Nation of Domination and the unfair treatment. So, you know, it, it, it's planting those attitude era seeds. Uh, but then also we eventually see that playing out with the nation and the heart foundation as well. Undertaker versus Ron Simmons could have been a good match. I, Undertaker versus Kama would have also, I mean, cause Kama ended up was the one the that friends. in the Undertaker during that match, during that tag match when uh, yeah. Ahmed originally turned. So, uh, I mean, uh, Ahmed's the, the bigger star of the group. Sure. I get it. But when you, go with the actual in-ring talent, he's the worst choice out of the entire nation. Right. 
Um, so then following that, I mean, we get our third match and this is going to be our co-main event because there was only four matches on the show uh, and it is for the WWF Heavyweight Championship. It is Vader with Paul Bearer taking on The Undertaker and uh, unlike Revenge of Taker where they gave us a storyline reason why Taker wasn't headlining uh, the show. Um, you know, uh, was it just the, the 10 man tag match was the special attraction, um, because of the hometown crowd. Oh, without a um, doubt. I mean, there was no, there was no storyline is what, what I'm kind of saying. So, um, was it just, was it known going into it that that was going to be the main event? I believe so. I mean, they yeah. tried to hype it up with the fact that, um, you know, Vader had pinned the undertaker back at the Royal rumble, and they even show clips of Paul Bearer's interference and also that Vader was a, a wrecking machine during the fatal four-way or the final four pay-per-view in February. So they tried to build it up and hype it as much as they can. And, you know, there were a few spots in the match where Vader uh, was, you know, had his working gear on and was moving hard. But then there were other parts of the match. It was your unfortunate typical Vader in this part of his career. So um, overall, it was a decent match for what it was. Taker was able to get something decent out of Big Leon. Um, I felt the crowd was pretty invested, at least in the big heavy spots and the oohs and the ahs and so on. Uh, Undertaker had a big boot and a leg drop on the Vader for a uh, two count. Um, we see old school on Vader uh, that was met with a lot of crowd appreciation. Uh, Taker and Vader are running the ropes and Taker hits that flying clothesline and the crowd popped really, really hard. Uh, like I said, Vader, t- at the beginning of the match, he looked motivated, was running the ropes, was moving really hard. Uh, but then as we get further and further in the match, we start to see some of the things that we, you know, Vader was known to be very frustrated with or things about Vader that many fans and I'm sure the promoter uh, and Ross and so on were very, very frustrated with. Um what were your guys' thoughts about both of the blatant low blows, the kick to the groin, the punch in the groin? You know, first it was Vader that kicked Undertaker in the groin uh, right in front of the referee, right in front of Tim White. And Tim White was staring at it the whole time. And even the commentary were like, why was that not a disqualification? And then a few minutes later, we see, you know, Undertaker get retribution when he was set up for uh, the big Vader bomb splash off the second rope, sits up. And then, you know, as Vader's bouncing up and down the ropes, prepping to, you know, do the big drop, and then Undertaker punches him in the groin. I just, the, the blatancy of some of, of those two maneuvers, I guess. And they're like, oh, the ref's letting it go tonight, blah, blah, blah. What, what were you guys' thoughts? Just, you know, it was storyline, just to try to make the match more appealing to the fans. I would think, because granted, Undertaker is, I don't want to say softer, but like, you know, he's not seen as this unstoppable monster as much, and, and especially here as a face, but he's still Undertaker. Right. So if you stop a match because the Undertaker got hit in the cul-de-sac, what do you, you know, it kind of ruins a little bit of that mythos. Right. But then once he hits on Vader, it's like, okay, we're even, done. Don't do it again, we're even. Shockingly, a thing I know about sports here is sometimes you'll have, like, an umpire miss a call or he lets one call go for each side and says, that's it. You guys got out of your system. Like if it's a retaliation for previous game or previous series or something like that. Okay. You guys did it. You guys did it. That's it. We're even knock it off. Next one, do it. You're suspended. You're out of the game. Like there's kind of like a gimme area and then that's it. No more. So that was kind of what I was guessing for this. 
plus it's a world title match. You always let a few more things go. Um, I was, you see the crowd going crazy in this match a little bit. You're like, what the hell is going on? What's wrong with the camera? What's wrong with the sound? Like, I thought it was more of a production error. And then you realize, no, it's just the crowd and it's going to get even crazier. Right. But what, what really surprised me here is the, the evolution of Paul Bearer that's still happening. Right. Yeah. Um, we're starting to get the, the hints of Kane and Undertaker, you murdered your family. His hair is a little different and all. But he's not losing anything of what Paul Bearer was with the Undertaker. He's not losing anything of this, this gothic character. He even, like, Undertaker rolls to the outside and Bear takes off his shoe and starts beating Undertaker with his shoe. Which is some of the best heel work I've ever seen. Right, right. Unfortunately, we we see a, a big botch in the match. Um, clumsiness on Vader or just, I don't know. So Undertaker pick, actually gets Vader up for a tombstone pile driver. Vader does the kind of like wiggle in the legs to fall back so that he would then pick up Undertaker. But then he then as he lands on his legs, he kind of rolls backwards too much. Um, and so now you got Undertaker technically on top of Vader for a pinning predicament. Um, but we re- he doesn't really follow through with that. Um, so we get to that Vader bomb attempt on the rope. Eventually, Undertaker kind of you know punches him in the groin area. We get a pretty decent looking choke slam off the second rope where Vader is standing on that second rope and Taker does the choke slam off of there. We get uh, a two count and then Undertaker sets him up for a regular choke slam. We get a two count. So two choke slams in a row. Vader's kicked out. Um, I guess my finish, my frustration with the finish, and it, it and it's just me and the and the idea of trying to keep the mystique, the kayfabe, and all that, is like how much like Vader had to run into the Undertaker to set up for help to help him pick him up to do the real Tombstone. Yeah. I mean, it was just like there was no like real setup for it. It was like Vader just got up, ran four or five steps to then help undertaker pick him up to do the tombstone pile driver and one of the things that was scary about the tombstone you know there's always talk about you hold the guy really really high like the pete rose tombstone pile driver so there's absolutely no way that the head is going to make contact or or you're 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 holding on really really tight so that they won't slide down whatsoever in this case uh vader leon white's was so low and when undertaker dropped him he didn't drop him on his head like taker tucked his head or vader tucked his head so much his chin so much like he got tombstone pile driven on like his shoulder blades in the middle of his back and you know got the big one two three victory just it looked super dangerous but it was cool and that and you guys helped me i think vader is the largest guy that we've seen undertaker ever successfully pile dry or tombstone i don't remember him ever getting mabel up and he never got giant gonzalez up either and certainly didn't get yokozuna up um and bundy's finish and and bundy's finish at wrestlemania was more of a a body slam not a tombstone so that's it that's just impressive too to just think about the upper body strength vader has to hang on to to takers, you know, waist to, to hold himself up too, because obviously it takes two to tango in that situation. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I thought that was absolutely uh, an impressive feat to do. Uh, it was kind of like when you saw Cena give the uh, the uh, F 
uh, FU to um, Big Show right. at, at that Mania. Uh, just just impressive. Now, I I know you said to, to keep it kayfabe, the the five steps into the pile driver um, kind of took you out of it. Do you think they should have ended the match on that second rope um, choke slam? I think then? so. I, I just to you know it, it was so, so impressive, uh, and the it, the crowd popped for it pretty pretty hard. It made me wonder whether or not the first tombstone attempt that they tried to reverse. And then tried to reverse it again. That that botch. I, I'm wondering if, if that was the 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 intent was to do a tombstone there and finish it. And then they ended up just going back and forth and doing the couple of choke slams so that it wouldn't be so super obvious a tombstone botch. And then let's try it again immediately afterward. But I think if they would have finished it on that first choke slam where Invader was standing on the second rope, uh, that that would have been a super crowd pleaser to finish the match right there. You know, the the more and more we go here, the more I just feel kind of bad for Vader for stuff. You know, you're right. I mean, he is ridiculously strong. He works so well there, but there's just, you know, we've had a couple flashes of brilliance, but there's just, he's nowhere near what he was. It's sad. Him taking this match on short notice, though, like, look how good he is. If this was the plan a month, two months ahead of time, it could, you know, he could have looked even better for it. But him taking Ahmed's place, you know, he probably didn't have a lot of time to, uh, to not, I mean, he had his weight issues, but, you know, maybe he could have been better knowing he had another world title match coming up here. Okay, so after that, we have our main event. But before we go to that, let's take a quick little break. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, guys, it's, it's Maddie Treats here. And if you're like me, you probably just found out that um, that maybe you weren't you weren't her only fan, and you're looking at that Amazon wish list. And I'm just here to say, don't don't buy that diamond. Don't buy the That's What We Call Country Hits Volume 5. You know, do something more productive. Take that broken heart and make art. You know, uh, start a wrestling podcast. I I mean, because there's not enough of those in the world already. Wait, wait, there's there's a lot of wrestling podcasts out there? So you're saying we're not the only one? (laughs) Oh, God. Anyways, just don't do it, guys. We're all in this together. The support group is every Thursday when the house show meets on the Retro Network. Not only fans but only us. Hello, fans. Kevin from The House Show here. Some of you may know me as the Masked Library. And as part of that title, I would like to give you a book recommendation. Presenting the In Your House Best of Jerry Lawler Jokes as originally told by Henry Youngman. 
Yes, that's right. Jim Ross keeps making comments about Jerry Lawler ripping off Henry Youngman jokes, and I found those original jokes just for you. Jokes like, every time I ask what time it is, I get a different answer. <laughs> I said to my wife, where do you want to go for our anniversary? She said, I want to go somewhere I've never been before. I said, try the kitchen. <laughs> I told the doctor I broke my leg in two places. He told me to quit going to those places. <laughs> Who says nothing is impossible? I've been doing nothing for years. Just think, if it weren't for marriage, men would go through life thinking they had no faults at all. Get off the stage! You suck! Hundreds of other jokes could be yours in this new book that you can listen to each and every Thursday on The House Show, right here on the Retro Network. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, of course, after the Vader versus Taker match, we get another recap of the weekend. Uh, obviously, that was put in probably just to fill some time because of only four matches on the show. They got to pack it out somehow or pad out the stats somehow. So uh, we get a video recap of gang warfare. Uh, what has really been going on? Uh, educator, do you kind of want to run through the gangs real quick? Um, to, to kind of go over that, do you have a, did you write them all down? I didn't write them all down, but we it just, we see clips from starting from like back at the Royal Rumble all the way to like the last couple of weeks going on in Raw. So we've got the revamped version of the Nation of Domination, who at the time is Farouk is the leader. We've got Kama Mustafa, D'Lo Brown, and an injured uh, Ahmed Johnson. We have uh, from the nation, Crush, who is now leading his group of fellows, the Disciples of Apocalypse, who would be former Harris Brothers slash, well, will become the Harris Brothers, uh, the former Blue Brothers, Jacob and Eli Blue, who are now Eight Ball and Skull. And then we have Chains, who, if you're not familiar with, was primetime Brian Lee in ECW and uh, actually portrayed the Undertaker, faker Undertaker, Ted DiBiase's Undertaker in that and the lead up to SummerSlam 94. From Savio Vega's group, uh, from him being tossed from the nation, he decided to head up his own group referred to as the Los Bariquas, where it was himself, Savio Vega. We had Miguel Perez. Uh, Jose Estrada Jr. and Jesus Castillo. And so we had four-man, four-man, four-man teams that came from the original Nation of Domination split into different factions. And then we also have the Hart Foundation with their five guys. And then we've got... And, and then for kind of like the face squad for WWE, we've got anyone that would be willing to brawl with Steve Austin who commonly would be uh, the Legion of Doom, uh, Ken Shamrock, and in this particular uh, pay-per-view, we also have Goldust stepping in. So lots of different factions going on, each with their own agenda in make, moving forward with uh, the, the greater good. Now, with the, with the gang warfare that was going on, and, and I, will, I will ask uh, the masked library this question, uh, th the gang warfare, was that a big Russo-ism? 
I guess Vince heard something about factions of people, factions of sides. I also think it's a response to NWO because, you know, WCW did have like Four Horsemen versus Dungeon of Doom. And then the NWO is a thing and who's against NWO and who's with them and who has their own little groups. I think it was reaction there and probably with Russo as well. Wouldn't it be chaotic? It's not one-on-one matches because everyone has their group of friends. Their, I don't want to say click, you know, not, not click like that click, but just a regular click, of, a group of friends, whatever. So you always have the possibility of someone interfering, someone running out, someone, you know, double teaming you, whatever. It does make it more exciting in a way, but only if you have a reason to care about those groups. Like, honestly, I never cared about DOA. I never cared about Los Bariquas. Nation got interesting. Heart Foundation's huge, of course. You know, DX, if you want to count them as a faction coming out of this as well. You had that Gang Wars pay-per-view Survivor Series, I think, that you know was playing up on this gimmick. But for the most part, you can throw four guys together. If I don't care about those four guys, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And then uh, we do get a Doc Hendricks interview. Um, he's interviewing uh, Goldust, Ken Shamrock, LOD, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. And if you want to make someone seem like a lone wolf, don't have them speak in this. Because that's what happens with Stone Cold. Everyone going through and doing their bit. And then Stone Cold just walks off because this is personal for him. So I thought that was a, I thought that was a really good um, small thing that they did. He had to walk off because he had a, a can of a tasty beverage in his hand. Did you guys notice what that can was? Coca-Cola Classic. Ooh. <laughs> sure it wasn't New Coke? Uh, it no, may have been Coke 3. Coke 3. Crystal, Crystal, Pe- was Crystal Pepsi around at that oh, point? Crystal no. Pepsi was around because I dated a girl named Crystal. No, Crystal Pepsi had, had been around and already was taken off the market. Much like that girl was taken off the market by you. I was dating a girl named Crystal when Crystal Pepsi came out. That's why I remember. Uh, what a time to be alive, Kevin. <laughs> what a time to be alive. All right. So uh, before, I mean, they're really pulling out all the stops for this event. Uh, we're going to have the group Farmer's Daughter come out and sing Oh Canada. I want to throw it to you guys. What is your favorite Farmer's Daughter song, gentlemen? Let me clear my throat. Oh, wait, no. I think that's DJ Oh, that's sorry. Wrong group. Um, I I got nothing. All right, Kevin? Um, You're the poutine of my heart. That's terrible. And everyone knows that the best song Farmer's Daughters have released is off their 1993 studio album debut, their cover of Son of a Preacher Man. Oh, God. Uh, By the way, everyone talks about Stone Cold's 1997. Let's just talk about Farmer's Daughters' 1997, shall we? Not only did they perform at the Canadian Stampede, they would go on to win Best Group or Duo at the CCMAs, the Canadian Country Music Awards in 1997, uh, two months later in September of that time. How, how many Junos? I mean, they had a run. How many Junos did they win? Uh, they won, uh, I think, one. <laughs> they won that year. Uh, they Yeah. Uh, they won Best Country Group or Duo at the Juno Awards in 1998. In both group and entertainer of the years at the, I think it's British Columbia Country Music Awards in 97 and 98 as well. So they had a little run there. I mean, they had an Austin-like run. Did they 
an Austin like run. Thank you. Uh, what do they do when they have a concert in Canada and someone throws pennies at them? Do they continue or do they go off stage? I, I wouldn't know. I've never seen them live. Oh, okay. We've just seen a Canadian in concert when someone threw a penny on stage and he got upset and walked off. Yeah. Well, you got to throw some loonies and toonies up there. Oh, okay. I get it. So it was, it was too too small of a of an amount. So they do have one number one hit single on the Canadian country charts. Of course, that is, as everyone knows, Cornfields or Cadillacs. <laughs> or or and? No, or. Oh, it's or. You you can only you can only be a country girl or a city girl. You can't be a cowboy and a king. <laughs> Educator is so disappointed right now in us. <laughs> Not a big country fan, Educator? <laughs> Not at all. Educator would take the Cadillacs, because that would his driver's ad on it. <laughs> Car sushi, all day. Car sushi all uh, day, man. All right, we do have uh, a couple celebrities sitting in front row. We have the Calgary premiere, Ralph Klein. And then, of course, we have Stu and Helen and the entire Hart family. All right. I, I have something to say. I know Kevin oh. Hellions. You, you've got so much heel heat with Diana Hart Smith and, and, and how she has just been the supposed draw uh, of, of the Bulldog and the amount of time that they've invested with her. I, I do believe we need to have heat with a, a, a more notable, prominent member of the Hart family. The one that turned this into a six-on-five match? Yes. The guy that was never been employed ever by the WWF that had to be, like, without a doubt, make sure he got every one of his shots in and just he took sucks. the focal point away of everything. Bruce Hart, to hell with you. You have you, you shame on you for your involvement in this match. It's ridiculous. ridiculous. Sit down, good sir. Sit down. I said good day. Was he in that Hart family versus Shawn Michaels was supposed to be Jerry Lawler in his night Survivor Series match? He was, was and he ended up them. being one of the winning. And, you know, he, he was um, for his father's promotion and his version of the promotion because he ended up running, Cal, uh, you know, Stampede Wrestling after he took it over from Stu. He, locally, he he was a, a decent wrestler for you know the Calgary area. In fact, he even was teaming with Brian Pillman back in the day in the eighties before Pillman had debuted for NWA WCW. But just the amount of involvement and just the becoming a focal point in this match, it was just absolutely ludicrous. And any other. Uh, involvement that he ended up having and just be having to have his two cents put in. Uh, you know, I, I heard nothing but atrocious stories of the Bret Hart McMahon match in at WrestleMania and how he had to get his involvement in and ended up sneaking in, becoming the, the referee and all that stuff. It, it's just go away, Bruce. Seriously, go Bruce. away. From all the stories, and then there's stuff in the wrestling with shadows, and there's stuff in interviews, and there's there's so many reasons. Bruce Hart is Bruce Hart's biggest and only fan. Yeah, Bruce Bruce Hart is the president of the Bruce Hart fan club, which he then had to disband because he got in an argument with Bruce Hart, and then had to go and form the real Bruce Hart fan club for true fans of Bruce Hart, and screw that other club. Like he's just obsessed with getting himself over in yeah. positions where he shouldn't where he, he, he's not necessary. 
and he takes cheap shots. When you when you watch the end, like after the pinfall, the and kid comes shot. In, yeah. Holy, why is he allowed in a building ever right. again? Exactly. Gotta maximize those minutes, boys. <laughs> Gotta maximize those minutes. Um, yeah. So okay, <laughs> there's there's a lot going on in this match. So let me go through the <laughs> let me go through the entrances. Okay. So Goldust comes out first. Uh, then we have Shamrock coming out, then LOD, and, of course, Stone Cold, okay? Uh, they all go right to the ring. Uh, and then, of course, the Heart Foundation, they get every person gets their own entrance, and it is fantastic. Uh, Pillman comes out first, uh, then the Anvil, uh, then the British Bulldog with the European Championship. And uh, did he come out with Mrs. Calgary? Mrs. Calgary, 1997. And then Owen Hart comes out uh, with the IC title. And then Bret Hart comes out in his Calgary Hitman um, jacket uh, for the uh, hockey team at the time. So uh, we are set to go. A few things that are made reference during Bret's entrance is that the Wrestling with Shadows documentary crew has been following him all weekend. Uh, That is said on commentary. I thought that was very interesting. Um, and you forget how much access they had and uh, how uh, that would not happen in today's wrestling. That's for sure. Um, Vince would not let that happen. Uh, and I think from the jump, we can see that this is the match the crowd has been waiting for because they are hot. Uh, educator, I know you had a lot to say about this match. So uh, are you ready to start class? Oh, baby. We got some play by play notes. For some of the bigger pops of the match. All right, class is in session. Take it away. Crowd was hot, standing for a good, good chunk of the match. Um, the Brett and Austin starting the match to a thunderous fanfare. Um, they're brawling back and forth, and they do a rehash of their Survivor Series finish earlier uh, from the end of last year, where Austin uh, puts on well what is now referred to as the Cobra Clutch onto uh Bret Hart and Bret Hart then pivots off of the turnbuckle to roll try to roll back onto uh Austin and only got a two count uh must be WWF still pretty frustrated with million dollar man leaving and no longer referencing it as the million dollar dream um I don't know if you guys caught it but I popped hard when Pillman and Shamrock were in the ring and Pillman gave Ken Shamrock a backbreaker, dropping him over his knee and laid on top of him as if he was going for a pin, but instead grabbed his arm and started smacking it up and down on the canvas and started telling to the ref, he's tapping out, he's tapping out all. Oh, I just thought that was so funny, referring to the whole idea of Ken Shamrock being the world's most dangerous man. Um Here's an interesting combination in the ring that I kind of wish we got a better program with. Owen Hart and Goldust. How cool of a feud would that have been for the Intercontinental title? Heal Owen Hart and, you know, face Goldust and so on. Uh, We see Owen Hart hit an Enziguri kick onto Goldust for an absolute huge pop. Um, Hawk gets tagged in. He's working with Owen for a bit, and he hits an off-the-top-rope splash for a two-count. Bulldog eventually gets tagged in and hits a standing vertical delayed suplex onto Hawk. Crowd goes absolutely nuts for that. Um, We get Bret Hart uh, 
uh, setting up for a tree of woe, uh, picking up gold dust and slamming it in the corner, and all five of the hearts are just pounding on gold dust. The crowd goes absolutely nuts. We get a couple of the, uh, well, the heel team, I guess, coming running over like LOD to make the save. Um, Owen Hart hits a top rope drop kick onto Animal, and then like. shimmies his hips and does a kip up and got an absolute huge huge crowd pop and then we get bruce hart bruce hart (laughs) who screws up his cue and gets involved in the match i think a heck of a lot earlier than he was supposed to when he ends up when austin throws Owen out to the out of the ringside uh in front of the entire hart family bruce hart ends up throwing uh, a good amount of his soda onto, um, onto Austin and trying to get involved and pound on Austin when, when Austin is working on Owen's knee in the corner. Eventually, Owen gets taken out with Austin hitting Owen in the knee with a chair. Um, but then Bruce realizes, oh, crap, this wasn't the part of the match that I was supposed to be involved in. And there's now soda all over ringside. Now, that soda that spilled all over that was thrown on Austin, that's going to come into play a little bit later. And it's going to make Bruce Hart look like a moron even more in a few more minutes. Um, so we got Owen Hart being taken out of the ringside by a couple of uh, referees. So now we kind of got a four on five, more of a sympathy, getting sympathy heat from the crowd. Um, as now the Austin team is up five to four in terms of who's involved. We see Steve Austin now tangling up with Brian Pillman. There weren't too many times that Austin and Pillman were in a, an actual match together in the ring. A lot of angles were shot between them, but no actual too, too many wrestling contests that I remember between them. We see uh, Austin getting the Stone Cold Stunner on Pillman. Eventually, Bret Hart somehow gets involved, gets tagged in, and he drags Austin over to the corner and starts working on Austin's knee, throwing his knee into the corner turnbuckle post, and then eventually picks up a fire extinguisher and to a huge crop, pop to the crowd and smashes Austin's knee a few times. So now Austin gets taken out. Uh, two referees that just took Owen Hart out now come back to the ringside and help uh, direct Austin out, who is apparently injured. So now we're back to a four-on-four. Four. Um, Anvil and Brett do a double-team maneuver. Uh, I appreciate the double team maneuver. I wish it was the heart attack clothesline. Instead, they pay a little bit of an homage to demolition uh, and they do the demolition decapitator with Anvil holding um, uh, Animal over his knee and Brett coming off of the second rope for an elbow drop. And Jim Ross is like, just like their days in the, in the heart foundation. Well, no, that wasn't their heart foundation finish, but it was a cool maneuver. Um, uh, nonetheless, uh, how about British Bulldog tagging in eventually on uh, Shamrock and they start and he does like an imitation Austin stopping a mud hole in the Shamrock's chest in the corner. Got an absolute huge pop from the crowd for that. Um, eventually we see Austin returning back to ringside and he kind of sort of gets like the hot tag. Brett eventually tags in and they start brawling back and forth. Uh Austin ends up getting put into the sharpshooter by Brett for Animal to immediately run in and do a save. Eventually, Austin decides to turn things around and does a sharpshooter onto Brett 
for Owen to uh, eventually limp down to ringside, do a run-in, and eventually do a save. And then we get the finish of the match, where now what was supposed to be Bruce Hart's involvement throws probably what is a teaspoon of soda onto Austin again at ringside to get him uh, to be distracted. And Austin goes over to the family, but instead of attacking Bruce, he ends up grabbing Stu, and then a few of the hearts end up jumping the rail. And the one that jumps the rail to try to make the save looks like an absolute moron. Bruce Hart slips and falls on all of his soda and does a face plant in front of the entire crowd um, from his soda from the earlier spot that he ended up botching in the match earlier. Brett, Bruce, and a few other Hart family members continue to brawl with Austin. And then eventually Brett throws Austin in the ring. Austin turns around to start taking a swipe at Brett. Owen does a roll-up, heel roll-up with a handful of tights. One, two, three, victory. And that actually sets up now the Bret Hart, or I'm sorry, the Owen Hart versus Steve Austin feud that will eventually uh, see a match between them at SummerSlam. Overall, um, hot, hot match. I, I the my frustration was Bruce Hart's involvement and just again maximizing his minutes when he probably wasn't even supposed to have as many spots and just being a camera hog um, in that match. I, I very much appreciated after the match was over and there was a brawl with some of the family members. Ken Shamrock brawling and trying to throw Bruce back over the guardrail, but instead he throws Bruce pretty stiff into the guardrail. I actually appreciated that very very much. Um, <laughs> It was uh, a great match, and I'm sure we're going to end up talking about this being the best match of the night and possibly being in our top of our lists for uh, overall decent, decent entertainment. I think for the match, it's not just bell to bell. You've got to include that entrance. You've got to include that fight at the end. Like, it's, it's one long story. I wouldn't call this match just you know, from Bell to the pinfall. There's so much going on here. From the moment the hearts come out individually and the, the pop keeps getting larger and larger and larger until they're all out, which continues really until Austin and Owen are taken out of the match, kind of on purpose to, like, let's calm everyone down for a little bit and then bringing them back out later on. It's absolutely unreal. We were talking earlier about, like, some of the hottest crowds and, you know, loudest and all, this is just absurd. They're shaking the hard camera. That entire side of the arena is just shaking, and you can't get a clear image on that camera. They eventually just stop using it. The sound is so loud, I thought that they had a mistake on the announcer's headsets, because you can barely hear them announce the match. It's just, like, I, I can't think of another reaction like this that I've seen on a show. It, it's just unreal. Austin, the crazy thing is Austin's kind of cheered a lot at first, too. Like, as much as he's the big heel, there's definitely, like, a pro-Austin part of this crowd as well. Um, I, I have a question, and it's not about individuals, because Bret Hart's amazing, Owen Hart's amazing, and all. As a collective, is the Hart family white trash? Because the reaction of them jumping into the ring at the end and Bruce Hart, and like you were saying, when Bret Hart and McMahon have their match later on, they're always fighting. 
there's lawsuits over releasing books there's always members not talking there's always stuff in the wrestling press like is it just you have so many kids eventually these kids and and their children all are gonna inevitably not get along on something i think that when you mix family and business together you're always going to have fighting especially with what 12 kids well in wrestling is the family business so this person doesn't think they get the respect they deserve. They put in more. I, I think there's always going to be infighting, and I just think that's for just a general statement. Um, I, I think very few um, family. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of family-run businesses, but when it is, you know, people getting their due, especially in a star business, which is this what it is, is there's going to be jealousy and stuff like that with. You know, oh, I made my uh, I made my little brother better, or I'm the reason he's this good, that sort of thing. So that that's just my opinion on it. I wouldn't say that they're white trash because I don't know who they I I, I don't know them, so I don't want to judge them. <laughs> and I think I think educator just hates Bruce Hart. I got I more hate with Bruce Hart than Lawler. Lawler's looking all right now with that goofy hat, seventeen and a half gallon hat. <laughs> I mean, here's how much Bruce Hart messes up. Owen Hart, who everyone tells these beautiful stories for, and he was such a prankster and joker, and he loved life, and he loved his family. He was such a good guy. He'd never meet such a good guy. Is staring into the turnbuckle, and the camera catches it because he's beyond pissed off with Bruce blowing that spot. But he still has to keep it under control. My favorite part of the match was, honestly, Austin coming out at the end and just taking the ass-kicking because he's grossly overwhelmed. In cuffs, Bruce getting this cheap shot into his kidneys, the whole Hart family beating him up, and then he leaves the ring bending over in the handcuffs just so he can flip everyone just off. Just flip off oh, the, fa- so not the family and then the fans at, off bond the, near the barricade. It was just nuts. Austin coming back with the chair, and the first Hart member he sees, unfortunately, it's Anvil. Anvil gets a big old chair shot to the back, but then the rest of the Hearts jump, including some of the family members who are still at ringside and are begun storming the ring. I just, Bruce is a mark. He's a mark for himself. And it's just, it's too bad the stain that he is for his family. But we, we see the next heart generation in the ring, though. They're kids. We didn't know what they were going to become. Natty's there, Harry Smith, um, TJ Wilson. Yeah. So, uh, question How different would this have been if uh, Michaels was in the match? Like, who would you take out? Goldust, probably? I, I would think Goldust because if you look at the direction um, where they were going, it's just they, they ended up pairing Goldust with Pillman just as like the fifth guy kind of deal. Um, I would think Goldust, or, I mean, Sh- I mean Shamrock, looks like they were priming Shamrock to go with Bulldog. Uh, Austin is now turning his sights to Owen and, you know, so and then you got the LOD, you know, you can't eliminate one either of those guys. So, yeah, I, I would say you would you would they would have swip swapped uh, Goldust, which was weird because during the interview segment at the big start of the match, you know, Goldust made it you know sound like it was him that got all five of his teammates together to, you know, do do the do the battle against the Hearts. So he made it sound like he was kind of spearheading everything. But he, of all of them, he was just like, he was like the weirdest one out, you know, or the oddest one thrown into the mix. Which which he did well, and honestly, is it one of the first times where they admit that he's Dustin Rhodes? 
Right. Two second generation superstar. Yeah, generation. when he was locking up with right. absolutely the son of the American dream locking up with the son of Stu Hart. So yeah, it was really cool. I'm gonna throw it out there. If Michaels is in this match, he's not the referee at SummerSlam, and even further out, Survivor Series might not happen. He would have wanted the spotlight. He would have been against you. He would have made an enemy of Austin. He would have made a further enemy of Brett. There would have been problems later on. Someone would have walked out for longer. There's no way Sean could have coexisted out there with who he was at the time. If he went out there, something would have happened, especially with that crowd, or he would have been mad at Austin or, or Bruce Hart or someone. He would have quit that night or the next day on Raw. He would not have been the referee at SummerSlam. And even if he was back in time of Survivor Series, it would not have been Brett versus Sean. Yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of what-ifs. Brett was, um, I mean, Brett, the thing that went down with Survivor Series is connected to the fact that Brett was leaving. And the thing with the financial situation, that stuff was still going to happen no matter what, whether or not Michaels was in this 10-man tag or not. You know, Brett still would have ended up leaving. It's just, yeah, maybe the fashion of which the Survivor Series finished and, and the screw job ending. But, you know, Brett still leaving is was, I feel, still going to happen no matter what. Well, our, yeah, probably Brett would have left, but screw job doesn't happen in that situation. Right. Like, if it was Austin, they respected each other. Brett would have lost that title to Austin in Montreal, for sure. Or an Undertaker. Or, you know, throw someone else in there. It was because it was Sean and it was Canada. Both. You take one of those out of the situation, it's, it's her job doesn't happen. So, knowing how this ends, of course, Austin turning his sights onto Owen, and then SummerSlam, they have the... Um the IC match where Austin gets the stinger. What was the plans for Austin coming out of this? Obviously taking the IC belt from Owen, but then what? What was his next feud? Was he still going to be feuding with more of the Hart Foundation? Did he move on to Pillman? Um, has that ever come out? Do we know? I I honestly, I don't know what the direction would have been. You know, honestly, going back and forth with Owen and maybe Owen being more of a, I mean, he was... In my eyes, he was the the number two guy in the Hart Foundation. Uh, and that's not a knock to Bulldog or, or the other guys that were in there. Um, you know, maybe they would have done more, you know, make it a, a focal point of Austin versus Owen once the, you know, Survivor Series and, and Brett leaving and all that stuff. But I, I do, like I said, I like the version of, of the fantasy booking of, you know, Brett willing to drop the belt to Austin at Mania rather, or at Survivor Series rather than him waiting to Mania to, to get it from Michaels. So, um, yeah, maybe they would have done, you know, that possibly, you know, looking at it, yeah, maybe they would have set it up where he, he does a two, three month feud with Owen and then gets back into the world title mix with, with Brett and does another match at Mania or at Survivor Series with Brett. That would be interesting. I also wonder if oh, him and Owen for the IC belt, as over as Austin is, and yes, he's already had world title matches, did they not have enough faith yet to put the world title on him? And doing the IC belt was kind of like, let's see how everyone reacts to this, and then decide. Yeah, I, I think at that point when you have Brett and Sean dominating your, your main events, and of course Taker still the title too, you know, at this point. Um, there, there was going to be a void. I, I'm just wondering too, if Austin, at what point did they earmark Austin for that mania 
win just because, you know, Sean injures his back at, at the Rumble in the, the casket match um, and Brett's gone. So, I mean, was it just, it's Austin's turn now. I mean, who else would you have had win at that point Yeah, if uh, Sean was going to leave, you know? Possibly Shamrock because they strapped a rocket ship to Shamrock. And, and, and then maybe maybe Owen, maybe they were going to finally push Owen. But then given the circumstances of, of everything else that ended up happening, they just went with a different dire- in a different direction. Uh, anything you guys want to add about the, the 10 man? Anything else? I got nothing, man. I thought it was a great, great match. Obviously, best one of the night. Certainly, I'm sure going to enter our, our next discussion here if it's going to crack our top five. Educator, it looks like Pillman's taking your hand and tapping you out on the match right now. <laughs> you see him? He's tapping out. Anything you want to add, Kevin? I, I'm just impressed to have all 10 men, the Hart family, referee, like everyone. J- just how do you put together this many people? And have everyone look good. Who who was the who was the producer? Do we know Patterson? Because it's on uh, Wrestling the Shadows. There's yeah. a little bit of them putting together this I'm match. I'm sure it's Patterson. So it's that time, guys. Obviously, I'm going to say the ten man was the best match of the night. Agree. All right, let's see if it cracks our top five. Let's start at the bottom, work our way up. All right, guys, is that ten man? Um, do we all agree it should be on the top five? Well, let's, let's start with number one, see or the fifth one, and see if it's better. All right, number five is Undertaker and Mankind at Buried Alive, the Buried Alive match. Was this better? Without a doubt, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'll give it. I would also agree. Uh, number four is it going to bump the Undertaker Mankind from Revenge of Taker? Of course, that was a surprise match that we all were kind of shocked about. Uh, I think with the the crowd involvement, the crowd hype, and just the uncanniness of the, the, the villains being the faces in in this night, uh, I would say it's better than that one as well. Yeah, and uh, that match still surprises me how good it was, but agree, this is higher. Number three, uh, is it better than the People's Posse versus Camp Cornette at International Incident? I am going to struggle with this, so I might have to default to you guys selling this to me. Uh, international incident. I'm still just how hot that crowd was to me. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking back to that podcast. I was looking at my notes from that particular podcast and I'm looking at my notes for tonight in this one. And, um, crowd was hot for both. Uh, and again, very, very interesting. The dynamic of the, of the hearts being the faces for the live crowd. Um, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts and what you guys think. That match comes up a lot where we'll debate whether or not another match goes higher and the debate always goes to, but you can't beat that crowd. That crowd was fantastic. That crowd did not shake the building. Literally that crowd did not become so overwhelming. It's just a wall. It's an actual wall of sound that continues throughout that match. It's actually deafening it's a longer match there's more people in it there's more there's a crazy amount of build up to it there's so many interesting interactions in that in this match i'm putting it ahead i agree with kevin on this one i think it's better than the people's posse versus cornet uh reasoning i like it better is storyline wise the storyline for when i watch this 
it made me want to rewatch all of the Raws where they were going mm-hmm. from Canada one week to the U.S. just to just to remember it, just to just to remember that time um, and see it again. It really hit that nostalgia itch where I was like, oh, crap, this was just as good as I remember. Um, and I think with the people's posse versus camp Cornette, I think Kevin, you made a great point. If this, if that match would have came up later in the series, I mean, we had it at nine and there really hadn't been that many great matches up to that point. Um, would it be, would it crack our top, top five? I I think this match is just, um, head and shoulders better than that one for the storyline. Austin, I mean, Austin at the end with the handcuffs flipping him off is classic. It's so freaking good. Uh, and it was an easy watch to me, and I would gladly watch this match again over that one. So, let's see. Uh, now, th- this is where it gets kind of interesting because it is, um, of course, for us, we are uh, just the three of us. We each get, you know, we, we do a majority rules here. So, is it better than number two, Brett versus the British Bulldog from Seasons Beatings? Uh, educator. I love that match, Brett Bulldog. The blood would just added so much to the to to that match to the rivalry. I just Bulldog's gear and just covered in blood, and just the just the brutality that that match, the unintended brutality of that match. Um. I guess I need you guys to sell me on it. You guys, I got you guys have sold me on it beating uh, the international incident. So uh, again, uh, I, I'm going to defer to you guys and see what you guys are. If you guys are split, I'm going to hear both of your arguments and we'll go from there. Kevin, think think about this. Think about this. Both matches have Diana Smith, so <laughs> it might true. be like a. Might be a toss up for you. Both 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 matches also have Brett and Bulldog if we're gonna do that. One match does not have Bruce. That's true. Okay. Because I have a bit of a dividing line as well. And I think this might be where it hits. I said earlier, I don't think you can count bell to bell. I think you need to count the entrance and the post match for how amazing this whole thing is. And because of that, I think it's going to stop here because here's the difference with the Bretton Bulldog and Shawn Michaels Diesel were great wrestling matches. There's not a lot of great wrestling in this. Yes, I know Brett and or sorry, uh, Shawn Diesel was a brawl, but there's not like, oh, my gosh, look at that sequence. Look at that wrestling. Look at this exchange for this match. This is the best sports entertainment match we've seen so far for the spectacle, for the storyline, for everything else, for the entertainment part. Nothing beats this. But if we're counting it as overall wrestling one, I think it stops at three. <sighs> See, I would have put it I would put it at two personally. Um, I don't think it touches HBK Diesel. I, I the HBK Diesel match. I don't know what it was about that match. I just loved it so much. Uh, I do think this is a, just a better overall, just like I said earlier, for the storyline wise than Brett Bulldog. But uh, I'm going to side with my tag team partners here because um, majority rules in this house, um, and uh, we'll, we'll put it at number three. Then the number three, baby. Um, because Brett Bulldog two is a is a great match as well. So. Um, I, I, yeah, this, this is, yeah, this, 
this was lived up to the hype, in my opinion, this match. Um, first, first one that lived up to and I think exceeded what I was coming into this with. The other one is Bretton Bulldog, because I remember that being great, too, because of the blood. So I would say that also uh, I would add in there. So, all right, guys. So it is that time uh, we got to look at the whole pay-per-view now and see where we put it in our uh, in our list here. Of course, we've seen 15 other ones. So uh, do you guys think it's in the bottom uh, no. bottom portion of it? The bottom four? I don't know. All right. Do you think it's in the middle four? No, I don't think so either. All right, so we're going to go top four, and I will start at number four, and we'll work our way up. Is it better than In Your House 6, Rage in the Cage? Yes. I, I would say so, too, just because of the fact that I appreciated the the that the Takamichi Noku Sasuke match. Uh, it's fantastic action to introduce the WWF audience to that style of wrestling. So, yeah. When the worst, in my opinion, when the worst match of the night is the Undertaker Vader match, uh, yeah, and it wasn't that bad, and it really wasn't that bad, other than the, you know the botch from from Vader. Uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't just blame Vader, but, but the two of them in that botch with the Tombstone reversal, um, it was a fantastic card. I'm shocked that they ran a pay per view where their the main card was only four matches, um, but you know is what it is. So, yeah, I would say definitely it would at least crack number four spot. So let's work our way up. All right. Is it better than In Your House number five, Seasons Beatings? What was my event for Seasons Beatings again? Bulldog. Bulldog. Brett versus Bulldog. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Bulldog and then Triple H and uh, uh, Hogman, Diesel Owen. This did have uh, tri- Triple H Mankind on yep. this one. For full card, I'm putting it higher. I would say so, too. Yeah. I, I concur. So, is it better than In Your House, number three, Triple Header? Um, I'm struggling with this one in the fact that Triple Header had, like, I think five or six matches on the main card versus this one having four. You know, is quantity better than quality? Uh, you know, but I, I remember looking back fondly on that triple header card, especially, uh, the, the main event and the undercard for that, um, frustrated at the Dean Douglas razor Ramon match at that one. Um, I, I, I think this one would bump that one out as well and be at least at the number two spot. Hallions, what's your thought? absolutely bumping it as well um even though there's only four matches on this card there's not a dud in there right there's, okay there's not a bathroom break match on here yeah you go you go to the bathroom to, during the calgary stampede recap videos <laughs> both of them yeah there's two which they should have shill some merchandise so you gotta take that all right guys so is it better than our number one is this going to be the new number one best in your house International Incident in your house number nine is our current number one. Is it better than International Incident? Thinking about it. Body Donna's versus the guns. Mankind versus Henry O. Godwin. Stone Cold versus Mark Merrow. Undertaker versus Goldust. Another classic. And then, of course, Camp Cornette versus the People's Posse that we put that number one because of that crowd and this crowd beats it 
I think so too. I think we got a new number one. Whoa! I would agree too. I thought this was the best. I thought, and I even texted this. I texted to you guys this. It was the easiest watch we've had so far. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if it was the f- the four matches. I mean, the the lengths are all pretty much the same. Um, this this pay per view flew by. I really like what they did with Triple H and Mankind intertwining that storyline. The thing about this show that I think makes it so good is it made me invested in those storylines and want to see more of it. Like just take the 10 man. If you wanted to have all these people paired off in matches for the year before this pay-per-view or the year after, I would want to watch that either way, either it all leads up to this or they split off because of this. And I didn't feel that way for any other one. It's only four matches, but there's so much quality on here. Crowd's insane. It actually lives up to it. It shows a lot of where everything's going. Like, this was just so good. Without a doubt, man. I absolutely agree, Uh, especially for me being such a fan of cruiserweights and lucha libre and what they refer to as the light heavyweight division. Uh, Being able to see a, a, a different presentation uh, a different interpretation of this presentation uh definitely enlightening to the wwf product overall yeah just an all-around great great show i really enjoyed this one so i think that's gonna do it for us guys so we got a new number one the match was number three what what a great event hopefully everyone uh everyone at home uh watched this and uh and joined us all right guys so next week on the show this is where it gets a little tricky everyone uh we're going to be watching ground zero in your house so they've they've switched the in your houses it's no longer leading also too this is the first three hour in your house event um that they they've bumped up of course the in your houses started at the two hour we're bumping it up to our to our third hour here and in the main event uh, we have, it looks like Shawn Michaels taking on the undertaker going ahead and re, uh, feed off of their SummerSlam encounter where, uh, Shawn Michaels ended up costing the undertaker, the WWF championship with that errant chair shot. He was trying to swing and hit Brett, but unfortunately Brett spit at him and ducked out of the way and ended up hitting uh, the undertaker instead. And Michaels had to do his due duties as referee and count the one, two, three, on the chair shot that he caused. If they really wanted to help us out here, they could have called it In Your House Ground Zero In Your House. Much like that Thursday Raw, Thursday Live. Thursday. Uh, and a little uh, fun fact, there are seven wrestlers we haven't seen before. On this paper. Really? Oh seven of them. Seven so. In Your House debuts. Cool. Is it cybernetical? Yeah. No, they were already on a show. I know. And then they, they come and out then, for a lumberjack match? And then they were gone. And then they were gone. Um, so uh, that's going to do it for us today. Educator, what do you want to say to the crowd out there? Just want to say thank you to my two co-hosts here. It's always a blast to hang out with you guys weekly and, and reminisce about these great pay-per-views. Uh, to the fans, uh, please, 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 if you have not done so already, why not? Go, please, check out that Retro Network, theretronetwork.com, to take a look at some amazing, amazing content that they post uh, on a daily basis, lots of variety there to keep you certainly entertained. 
and uh, uh, looking forward to uh, providing continuous content to you guys uh, for uh, the In Your House series. Yeah, and uh, I just want to thank everyone for taking the time out to make us part of your week. I really do appreciate it. I know when we record um, and we go through and edit and everything, we try to give you guys the best podcast we can possibly bring you. Um, So I do want to thank you guys for uh, listening to us. If you do enjoy the show, Please, please, please uh, tell a friend. Um, you know, uh, we want to grow the audience as, as best as we can. Um, so help us get the word out there. Um, also, too, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Maddie Treats. Uh, once again, at Maddie Treats. And uh, a little word to the wise don't pee on banks. And I am going to let Kevin Hellions take us off. All right. Thank you to the Retro Network for hosting us. Thank you to WWE Network for the content. Thank you to my two hosts there for this, which has become like a highlight of every week to get to talk to you two and goof around a little bit. Uh, thank you to Richard Reader for our logo. You can find us across the internet at TRN House Show. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find all of my stuff at Masked Library and MaskedLibrary.com. And the world's kind of crazy, guys. There's a lot going on. But if you could, any listeners and readers, if you could just take a moment of your time and please sign my petition so that I can be the next Mrs. Calgary and unseat Diana Hart Smith. I'd appreciate it. I also want to point out, I made one of my dumbest jokes tonight and neither of you reacted. I'm a little disappointed. Well, one... They're all your dumbest jokes. <laughs> I said Paul Bear took off his shoe to beat him with. That's great heel work. It's a shoe. Heel. <laughs>